week is that the Lord does not love to confuse us. The Lord does not love to confound us. The Lord does not love or mean to, um, to creep us out. And that the whole book of Revelation, we've said from the beginning, is a book from Jesus to us about Jesus. And if you think about it, it's kind of, we could call it, we haven't called it this yet, but you could think of it kind of as a graphic novel. Or think of it if, you're, if you've ever um, done, you know, like my daughter, she's in the seventh grade. She's starting to go through uh, Mouse, which is that creative retelling of the Holocaust, but it's told through uh, the Jews are mice and Hitler and, and Nazi Germany are cats. And it's a creative visual retelling of a very, in that case, horrible, horrific story that we've ever known in our world. Part of what the Revelation is trying to do is it's a graphic portrayal through images and illusions from the Old Testament telling or really retelling the story of Jesus. And that's how we're trying to preach it week by week and try to understand it week by week. So tonight, though, we're looking at the last. uh, We didn't get to look at all seven letters. We're looking at actually Jesus's last letter of the seven to the churches in Asia. And so tonight is the church in Laodicea. And so this is another, you've probably heard some of the, this, you've heard of this image before about lukewarmness, where Jesus says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth. It's a powerful image, and we're going to dig into it tonight. So Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, it's in your handout if you want to follow along. Here's what uh, Jesus says, or tells John to tell the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will, to the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray for us, and I want to unpack this passage together tonight. Let's pray first. Lord, we do thank you that you're a God who loves us enough uh, to, to, show us, to show us yourself, to show us what it is you're really like. To show, it as, to show us uh, through your word what it is that you want for us, uh, what you ask of us, and what it looks like, Lord, to be in relationship with you. Lord, I do pray as we pray every week that you would, through your word, by your spirit tonight, become, Lord Jesus, more believable and more beautiful to us, more glorious, uh, more powerful. Would you show us yourself as you really are, even now, ascended, sitting at the right hand of our Father, but yet with us, with your people. So would you open your word to us in beautiful and healing and powerful and challenging ways. And Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So it happened again. I'm watching, my wife and I are watching uh, this show Waco last night. It's on Paramount. It's an obscure network, but it's got my guy. It's got a lot of famous actors, but it's got my guy, Tim Riggins. If you're a Friday Night Lights fan, Taylor Kitsch, he plays 
a true story. He plays David Koresh. If you know anything, you're probably a little bit too young to remember the Waco story. But basically, David Koresh was essentially a cult leader who led uh, through this sort of weird fundamentalist, very uh, future-reaching um, cult. Uh, he, in this standoff with the FBI and the ATF, it led to this horrible, basically, deaths of like 30-plus people. It was horrible. But uh, they're doing this series about it, which is really interesting. And one of the scenes last night, David Koresh is preaching to his church. He would sometimes preach for 12 hours, which is amazing to me because 30 minutes feels just long enough to not lose you. Uh, 12 hours, but in this one sermon he's preaching on the show, he says, we're going to open Revelation. Revelation is all about the future. And in Revelation 7, it talks about this lamb. And in this <laughs> charismatic, only Tim Riggins could do kind of a way, he goes, and I want you to know the lamb is me and you should follow me. And Alyssa and I are both like, no, like the, Jesus, Jesus. But it happened again. Revelation, we've, we've not, this is one of those books that we've heard so much bad teaching about. What can we make sense of? And what you have to understand again tonight, I'm going to say it every week, is that Revelation is from Jesus. And every week it's going to show us something about ourselves that we need to wrestle with and grasp. But it's more importantly going to show us something about him and our need for him and what he has done or is going to do. In other words, Revelation is a book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible. And the Bible, if you've been around RUF long enough, you know, is all about not you. It's about Jesus and your need for Jesus, therefore about you. But it's ultimately about him. And so tonight we're going to do the same thing. It's going to show us this passage, something we have to wrestle with about ourselves and something we have to see about Jesus. So here's how we're going to do it. I want to talk about this idea of lukewarmness where Jesus has that graphic image where he's essentially saying, you make me want to throw up, which is a, cra- a, you know, a crass way to say it, or a crude way to say it. But I want to look at that idea of lukewarmness, and I want to look at three things. I want to look at what lukewarmness is, what does he mean by it. I want to look at uh, basically why it comes, why do we as believers wrestle with it, why is it a thing, and then lastly I want to look at, about, I want to look at how it's healed. So what it is, uh, why it comes into our lives, and then lastly how it's healed. So let's first start with what lukewarmness is. Now, here's a little bit of context you have to understand that is really, really significant and important about Laodicea. That one of the things you have to understand is it was a place that lacked a source of natural water on the one hand. So it meant that the water had to travel from a far, really far away through these stone aqueducts. And by the time it got to the city, let's just say it was less than fresh. It was not water that you would like look at and just want to lap up and drink gallons of. But on the other hand, you, have, you also had this other dynamic going on in Laodicea, where in the city of Hierapolis, for my ancient Greek culture, you know, I'm going to botch all these. But it was a place famous, about six miles away, that was famous for its natural hot springs. So think Austin, Texas, think other places that are famous for hot springs. But what would happen is they would roll, these hot springs would flow uh, through the Lycus Valley down this 300-foot cliff that landed basically right in Laodicea. And so because Laodicea City was like a city, it was more like a New York or a Chicago or a San Francisco, a place you would want to go visit, all these visitors would come and they would see what looked like beautiful water. But because it came from a hot spring, they would put it, they would, they would drink some of it and they would immediately, story has it, history has it, they would immediately spit it out on the rocks because it was not drinkable. Why? Because it was lukewarm. It was neither hot, like you would do hot lemon water if you're into like the whole 30, or cold, delicious ice water. Instead, it was something very, very different, lukewarm, and that's all they had. So what is Jesus saying? This is the image. This is what would be very relevant to them. They knew exactly what he was saying. And I think we have two options. I'm going to go with the second. But the first thing, probably the way you've heard it before, is some people would say Jesus is saying, I wish you were either on fire for me or decidedly against me. Basically, I wish you were a committed 
faithful, zealous Christian, or I wish you were just like a reasoned, you know, atheist who had your reasons for rejecting me. But don't do that thing in the middle where you pretend to be one thing but live a different life. That's one option to us. But I think actually he's saying something a little bit different. Because the thing, the, the thing that's going to have to control our exegesis or control our understanding of this text is basically he is speaking to the church. He is speaking to believers. He is pe- speaking to people he would say belong to him. And so I think we've got to go a little bit of a different direction. Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, I wish you were either hot or cold, meaning I wish you were what you're supposed to be. I, I wish you were with me what you are saying that you are. I wish, in other words, I wish you would live consistently with your profession. I wish you would live consistently with what it means to belong to me. Um, think about it like this. Uh, I'm a huge fan of McDonald's fries. It's one of my weaknesses. I like really any fry I'll take. I'm not going to lie to you. Even Arby's are welcome into my um, body. Uh, but McDonald's fries, I think we could agree, are especially delicious. I remember we took our ministry team a few years ago to see Jim Gaffigan, and he's got my favorite uh, McDonald's fries joke ever, where he says, your mom has never made anything as delicious as McDonald's fries, which I think is really, really true. But the thing about, if you've ever had McDonald's fries, is they are, like, you have to eat them fresh. Like, have you ever done, like, I've tried it, where you try, you, you let them go cold, and you try to revive them. And those things are not coming back from the dead, right? They are not, maybe in the new heavens, new earth, but not when you, you can't microwave them. I guess you could try the oven, but you know, when they go cold and get soggy, it really, I mean, the only thing I could think to the way they feel and taste is it's like if yoga mats were fries somehow, and that's kind of how they feel in your mouth. They're horrible. You, they, you're, they're supposed to be eaten hot. Or think about the other hand. Think about if you're of age, you know, when a beer gets to room temperature or warmer, how disgusting that is, or even just, even just a soda, even just a Coke, when it gets to room temperature, like, that's not how it's supposed to be. We all know this, right? I don't care if you're an ice person or not. You can go no ice. I'm not going to judge you as long as it's cold. But if you go ice at room temperature, we have a problem. And Jesus is saying, I wish that you would simply be what you, what you are. I wish you would simply live consistently with who you're claiming to be. So this begs the question for us. What are some of the characteristics? How do you know if you're worried tonight, you're a lukewarm Christian? What are some of the characteristics of it? Well, here are a few that I think particularly apply when you're in college. Here's the first one. Your lifestyle doesn't match your theology. This is actually, I was thinking about this. I think this is part of why we're drawn to the office, especially Michael Scott. You know, Michael Scott, I was looking today. He has that quote I love where he says, and I knew exactly what to do, but in a much more real sense, I had no idea what to do. And he just he has all these moments where he has no, seemingly has no self-awareness in his, the way he kind of says things doesn't match how he sees himself. And I often think there's just this total disconnect. And I think sometimes it's really easy to be a Michael Scott kind of Christian where you think of yourself in a super inflated way, but in the reality of how others see you and the things you actually do and say, there's a disconnect and they don't match up. Here's the second one. We're just going to do three. That you're more driven by what others, th- what others think of you than what Jesus thinks of you. I had a student years ago at Georgia Southern where this funny dynamic happened. He, he basically was a camp. He was a camp guy. And so every summer, like three summers in a row, he would go off to camp and he would lead all these students. And it was wonderful, beautiful. He seemed to grow. But then he would come back to campus and it would just come crashing down. And this call got exposed because he, he started dating a girl at camp. 
And then she came to visit him one weekend at Georgia Southern, and she was like, I, she like told him, she's like, I don't know who you are. Like you are, this is, this is a radically, you're so so different. And what we kind of discovered over coffee, over one on ones, was there was camp. Let's just call him, let's call him Scott. There was Camp Scott, and there was Campus Scott. And Camp Scott was seemed he appeared like a really strong Christian, but it was just because he was living into what these other fellow camp counselors thought of him and expected of him. And then there was Campus Scott. And Campus Scott did the same thing. He was just driven by totally different people in a totally different way. And you see that that's super real. I, I talked about that last week. That's a super real struggle for me and can lead to lukewarmness. And then the third one is you're a confessing theist. You're a Christian, but you're a practical atheist. Um, no one gets this better. There's an obscure uh, short story by my guy John Updike, who's one of my favorite writers. It's called The Christian Roommates. And it's about these two guys that go to Harvard. One of them is very kind of buttoned up, put together. And uh, the other is sort of more like hippie, kind of free spirit. The one uh, wants to be a doctor just like his dad, but he's very kind of moral and uptight. The other is just super free spirited and does whatever he wants. And they have this massive conflict as roommates, which you guys probably can't relate to at all. But the end of the story that I love is it talks about the trajectory of the uptight, buttoned-up kind of Pharisee in the story. And it says this, His life has gone much the way he planned it, and he is much the kind of man he intended to be when he was 18. He delivers babies. He wanted to be a doctor like his dad. He assists the dying. He attends the necessary meetings. He plays golf and does good. He is honorable and irritable. If not as much loved as his father, he is perhaps even more respected. In one particular only, a kind of scar he carries without pain and without any clear memory of the amputation, does the man differ from the man he assumed he would become? He never prays. And that's how the story ends. And I love that because it is so, so easy in the Christian life to kind of have this face of believing and and saying all the right things. But when it comes to the inward reality to just live as a practical atheist. And I know this as a pastor, maybe more than you do, of how easy that is. And all of these things lead to lukewarmness. So let's talk second, why it comes. So why does it come? How does, this, how does it come into our lives, this, this lukewarmness? Well, here's another thing you have to understand about Laodicea to help you understand what Jesus is saying to them. I already mentioned that Laodicea was a true city in lots of ways, but there are at least three that, we have, that are really important in this text. First, it was an incredibly wealthy city. It was actually a banking city, so there were surrounding cities that would look to Laodicea for their money, look to Laodicea for their loans, and they would, it was just a city of great, great wealth, and so it was a city of great riches. Second, it was a city of fashion. They actually had these sheep, apparently, that their wool was kind of shiny, and so they would export clothes all over the world and were kind of known as a fashion hub. They just really, really cared and were invested in the, their Appearance, And so it was a city of great clothes. And then lastly, it was a city. Thirdly, it was a city of medical advancement. What was actually what they were most famous for medically and probably technologically speaking was that they essentially created this eye salve that was revolutionary for the day where it would help people with any kind of eyesight issues have some growth and have some healing. And so it's no mistake that Jesus, look at what he says to them. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, and then he says, poor, blind, and naked. And then he says, right? He hits them right in the place where they are most compromised. 
He hits them right in the place where they are most prone to find their idols and to find their worth and to find their meaning and to find their value. And then he says to them, he counsels them, buy gold from me that you might be rich. Buy clothes from me to clothe your shame and your nakedness. And buy salve from me that you might see. In other words, their life has been saying, this is important to see, their life has been saying, I need nothing. That's not what they would have been singing in church, right? They would not have been singing that, but their lifestyle was saying, Jesus, I don't really need you. When it should have been saying, Jesus, you are all I have, and if I have you, I have everything, right? So how do they get there? Two things, two things you have to see. First, compromise. I already mentioned it. They compromised. Uh, what becomes clear is that they are compromised in at least those three ways. And the best way to say it is they were driven more by the spirit of the age than they were by the spirit of God. And they were in step more with the spirit of the age than they were the spirit of God. Now, of course, you understand when I say that, you know, when we talk about culture, we always are quick to say in RUF, we love and want to engage and serve and enjoy all kinds of things in our culture. We are not against culture. We are in that way very for culture. But there's a way in which Laodicea had compromised themselves with their culture, the culture of their city, in a way where they were trying to serve two masters. And we know, Jesus says, you can't, it's not possible. You cannot serve two masters. One will ultimately win out. Uh, I love the words of RWN, just in your handout, that he who marries the spirit of the age will soon be a widower. And this is part of what Jesus is saying to them. I was thinking about this, uh, this particular application because lukewarmness isn't just something that happens for us personally. Probably I thought the, the most interesting Super Bowl ad, if you watch the Super Bowl, was the Dodge Ram commercial that had the powerful Martin Luther King speech behind it. And it felt a little bit like, oh, I see what you're doing, Dodge. Like, where I'm, like you know, I see, mm-hmm. like, you're trying to sell me a Dodge Ram through this inspirational man who's super important, uh, maybe now more than ever. And then someone, the beauty of the internet, someone took, I don't know if y'all have seen this or not, but someone took that same ad and then put what Martin Luther King said about these kind of brands, especially like car brands, and dubbed it over the thing. And you have to go listen to it because it's the most searingly like exposing thing. He basically just preaches against the dangers of capitalism and greed and how you, how these, it's killing, you know, it's killing America. And it's amazing. But I was thinking about that. I was thinking, it was fascinating to me. Here's why. I was just having a conversation with a friend. We were talking about the problems, um, the, the problems that racism and segregation caused in our country. And we were talking about just in this kind of um, just conversation we were having. And he was like, you know, sometimes I feel like so much of racism and so much of the racial difficulty uh, and problems that we have, how much of it is driven. Sometimes I think, he said in a candid moment, sometimes I think it all comes down to money. And I was thinking about this because there was a, I was reading today, actually, there's this, actually, uh, in the 40s and 50s, there was this whole uh, thing that happened to black Americans. And it happened in Levittown, I might botch this, Levittown, Levittown, New York, where basically the federal government, this guy wanted to to do this essentially first suburb, a huge suburb, and he was going to build 17,000 houses. And so his one condition, though, working with FHA FHA was not to sell to any African-Americans. And he would not build it, and that was the government's deal, is none of these houses could be sold to African-Americans. And there there was actually a second condition. Not only could they not be sold to an African-American, but they actually couldn't be 
uh, resold. It, part of the clause of the deed was that it couldn't be resold when that family, that white family, moved to an African American family. And this guy, he, he wrote this book about the housing crisis that happened in the in that the 40s and 50s. It got you know the Fair Housing Act came to be in 68, but by that time, what he says it was all the wealth that came from the buying and selling of those houses went to white families. And so today, in 2018, there's actually, if you look at all the studies, uh, black families are, have 60% of the wealth that, and get paid about 60% of the rate that white families do, but they have about 7 to 8% of accumulated wealth. And the reason that that happened, when you look at studies, is largely to do with this housing discrimination. <clears throat> and as I was thinking about that, this was my thought. Where were the Christians Like, where were they? They were obviously involved in this, right? And the guy that writes this book says this is a really fair question, and part of what happens is we know what happens, is we can say one thing publicly, but then we have our own private interests, whether it be what people, what their friends were going to think of them, whether it be their own financial stake in it happening, whether it be their own racism that lurks in every heart, white or black. And this is part of what Jesus is saying, y'all, is where... Where are the Christians that are standing up, not just personally in their relationship with Jesus, but standing up to things socially that matter, that Jesus cares about? They were compromised. Compromise always leads to lukewarmness. But they were more than compromised. They were also, another another C word, they were also compartmentalized. This is another huge, huge idea in this text. So the other thing that becomes clear is that they had shut parts of their life off to Jesus. There were parts of their life, whole parts of their life, that they were not open to Jesus touching or entering into. Uh, another way to say it was, they were saying, Jesus, you can come through this door. Usually the way we do it is you can come through this salvation door. I want to be saved from my sins. But when it comes to these doors, my money, my sexuality, the way I do alcohol, the way I do food, the way I do, well, just name it. The way I do time, the way, so many things over here. You cannot come through these doors. These doors are shut off to you. And it's what we call classically what psychologists call compartmentalization. Here's the way one guy says it, one of my favorites, Scott, his name is M. Scott Peck. Here's how he says it, sing your hand out. He said, human beings have a remarkable capacity to take things that are related to each other and stick them in separate airtight compartments so they don't rub up against each other and cause them much pain. We're all familiar with the man who goes to church on Sunday morning, believing that he loves God and God's creation and his fellow human beings, but who on Monday morning has no trouble with his company's policy of dumping toxic waste in the local stream. Uh, he can do this because he has religion in one compartment and his business in another. He is what we've come to know as a Sunday morning Christian. And then he says, I love this, he says, it is a very comfortable way to operate, but integrity is not. Integrity is painful, but without it, there can be no wholeness. Integrity requires that we be fully open to the conflicting forces and ideas and stresses in life. No series has nailed this idea of door. Because now we're talking about being open. We're talking about the imagery that Jesus is using of doors. No series has done this more beautifully than Mad Men, if you're a Mad Men fan at all. It's one of my, my wife and I's favorite shows. But Matthew Weiner, the whole, throughout the entire, uh, not just seasons, but series, he, he intentionally focuses on the imagery of doors. And one, one kind of critic says, the way that you know this is so important is there are so many, th- there's a door in almost every scene of Mad Men that is opening or closing. And he's saying when it's closing, you know a character, usually Don Draper, is about to ruin someone's life. 
He's just, it's a bad thing. Because doors represent thresholds. They're thresholds for incredible change that can happen, and they're thresholds for incredible ruin that can happen. They're potential for letting others in, and they're potential for shutting others out. And this brings us to, this image brings us to the last point. How do we get healed of our lukewarmness? And the first thing you have to see is where Jesus is standing. We've said the where, where Jesus stands in Revelation is huge. We looked a few weeks ago how he's standing. The lampstands represent the churches. And where was Jesus standing? He was standing in the middle of the lampstands. Why? Because he's with his people. He is a God of the covenant. And he is with his people. He's not from somewhere far away. In this passage, where is Jesus standing? He's standing at the door. And he's knocking. And he's not going away. Now... Maybe you've heard this. I remember when I was in youth group back in the day, like this was my favorite text to kind of disprove Calvinism. It's not where we're going tonight. Uh, it's not, again, if we're keeping a controlling idea that, that basically that Jesus, that he's speaking to believers, it, it can still be this beautiful picture of, of some of the aspects of evangelism, the way Jesus pursues the lost, the way Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost, the way that Jesus invites all, anyone who is weary to come to him and unburden themselves, absolutely beautiful image for that. But I think it's, there's more to it. I think part of what Jesus is saying is that every door in your life belongs to him. He wants in every room, no matter how messy. Another way we can say it is every part of your story matters to him. And he wants in He wants in to every single part of your story. Y'all, can I just say to you, I'm 37 years old, and that, I am convinced, is Jesus' work. Like right now, he is forcing his way through the door of our money. And I don't like it. Because I want to do with my money what I want to do, not what Jesus wants me to do. That sounds like the worst. It's not. It's beautiful. But he, I am convinced at 37, the work of, of Jesus in my life and in your life is to knock at every single door in your life, in your story, and say, I want in. I'm here for it. I'm here to love you. I'm here to unburden you. I'm here to absolutely transform you. All of it. Uh, I was thinking about this. I read this. Uh, this Is Us is a show we're, we haven't watched yet, so, but we're going to watch because I think every single human on earth watches it. So it's with just pure pressure. It's time to do it. But I was reading this review about, it's actually about one of my favorite pastors, his name is Russell Moore, and he's talking about how it's become such a phenomenon. And so the article is called, you know, Why We're Obsessed with the hit show, This Is Us. And he talks about it like this. I'm just going to read it because I thought it was so beautiful. He's saying why it rings so true for us. And here's what he says. He said, this rings true, the show rings true because we all tend to see our lives as narrative. And like the characters in the series, the narrative is often murkier than we would like. Some of us had relatively idyllic childhoods. Some of us grew up in the specter of violence or addiction or abuse or some other awful reality. Some of us grew up wondering whether the family figures of our past are heroes or villains or a mixture of the two. And here's what he says. But the switching back and forth between the 80s and 2016 reminds us that the narrative of our lives is not a straight line. Our childhoods aren't just back there, but they intrude in our lives now. Sometimes in picking at old scars and sometimes in reminding us of the small mercies that have brought us safe thus far, we wouldn't be who we are if not for the stories that have made us. Stories we love, stories we hate, and sometimes stories we long to peer into but leave us in mystery. And I read that and thought, yes, because Jesus wants in on all those stories. 
He wants in on all those doors. And he's not going to stop knocking in your life until you invite him in. Until you let him in. He doesn't need your permission, right? Like, I think we know enough about Jesus, I hope, through this text even. We know enough about Jesus to know he, he's not so weak that he doesn't, he can't, he could kick the door in, right? He could, he could magically make the door disappear. Like, have you ever read the glorified Jesus stories where he, like, walks through walls and stuff? It's not nightcrawler type stuff, which is amazing. He doesn't, he's, he's not incapable. He can do it if he wants. And yet there's something about Jesus that so wants you involved and engaged that he's waiting for you to open that door and let him in. This is the last thing I want you to see is who this Jesus is. And it's back to the front, the first part of the passage. This is the only letter of the seven churches of the letter to the seven churches where Jesus gives himself a name. There all in all the letters. He refers to things he has done. In all the letters, he refers to things he is doing or is going to do. This is the only letter where he actually names himself. And the first name he gives himself is a weird one. He calls himself the Amen. What Jesus is doing, he's actually referring to Isaiah 65, which if you're like me and had to go Google that, you're, you're in good company. Isaiah 65, that was the famous passage where God is painting a picture of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like. It's that famous passage that talks about it's going to be so peaceful and so rich and glorious that wolf and lamb are going to lie down together. And God, twice in that passage, calls himself the God of the Amen. The God of the Amen. You and I have reduced that word to close a prayer, like I'll say Amen tonight. But you understand that that word actually meant, it's not just may it be so, but it's this promise. And it's not just a promise, it's also a foundation, like a rock of the reality of truth. And Jesus, this is the Jesus, this is what you see, the amen. The one who is going to bring the things that we long for about in our lives. The one who alone can change us in the ways that we long to be changed. The one who can alone not just forgive us for our sins, but love us out of our sins. The amen is the one who's knocking at the door. And the question for you and me is what, what door right now is closed to Jesus? And then the next question that it begs is, will you let the amen, the one who is the rock and wants to be the rock of your life, in to those places? And friends, that's how we're delivered from lukewarmness, is letting Jesus further and further and further and further in. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray, I pray for myself and for my friends that you would do that work in us, that you would show us, uh, help us answer those questions tonight. Where, where are the doors in our lives that are close to you? And Lord, uh, where are the places that we long for you to come, even though we're afraid? And we're scared. And if we're being honest, we're a little bit mad. And Lord, I pray that you would, I thank you, I don't have to ask you to, that you are a God who pursues us in relentless grace and love. And so Lord, would you pursue your people here in this place tonight? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. 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 Amen.